Welcome to Tinto Talks, the hub of all things perinatal. My name's Octavia and I will be talking about all things pregnancy related and beyond. We'll be covering specialist topics from experts in the field and collect a spectrum of real life stories from parents who've been there and done that. Our aim is to offer unbiased, evidence-based information, but also shed light on the joys and challenges of parenthood to support each unique journey. There really is something here for everyone. Finally, if there's a topic that you want us to cover, let us know. But in the meantime, sit back, relax, and prepare to feel supported, inspired, and informed. Hi and welcome to Tinto Talks. My name's Octavia and I'm the resident physiotherapist and here we are super lucky today because we've got not only the wonderful Dr Nina Fuller-Shavel who is here to talk to us about functional medicine and its role in fertility but also Dr Hannah Allen, the uh, co-founder of Tinto, the app um, and the reason why we're here today. So welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I think we should start by just outlining some both of your amazing credentials. Um, Nina, you have not only one but two degrees from Cambridge, uh, one in natural science and the other in medicine. And then alongside that, you've done a couple of postgraduate degrees also in um, personalised nutrition and also um, integrative medicine, uh, being one of the first cohort of doctors to qualify for that in the UK. Um, and then after, uh, you're also a health coach and trained in hormonal therapy. Um, and then following 10 years of experience in functional medicine um, and uh, personalized nutritional therapy, you then set up a synthesis clinic in 2019, which is the first CQC registered clinic in the UK, um, which has um, the functional medicine, but also the integrative uh, team as well. Um, and this is focusing on women through every stage and age of their life, uh, looking at gut health, um, mental health, uh, well-being, hormonal therapy, and uh, also supporting women through the perinatal period. And then alongside all of that, you also <laughs> like to lecture and are really keen in research um, to support the functional medicine uh, practice and showcase what it can do. So, and this is all by the age of 35, which is quite remarkable really. So well done you. <laughs> and, then, and then Hannah, this feels like a game of top trumps here. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> you win. <laughs> Heather, um, you have got 11 years in the clinical uh, field as well and um, worked on a variety of roles, but um, interestingly, uh, did three years with Babylon, um, working in their operational uh, AI team. Um, and then um, you're currently working as a GP specialising in women's health in West London and last year set up Tinto, uh, which was aimed to bring together a community of women um, and also to... Um, kind of give a hub of information uh, to support women through motherhood and their journey. Woo! <laughs> there we go. I think, you, I think you need a glass of water after that one. <laughs> well done. Exhausting. <laughs> anyway, so uh, for what we've come here to talk to you today um, is to talk a bit about functional medicine. So I thought we should just start about explaining what that is. Um, and I thought I would um, start with a 
quote from Dr. Mark Hyman, who is the chairman of the Institute of Functional and Integrative Medicine. Um, and he says that conventional medicine is the medicine of what? So what disease have you got? And what drug, therefore, do I need to give you to try and help treat it? Uh, whereas functional medicine uh, seeks to find the root cause of the condition. So of course, you consider the what the problem is, but then you go back and ask the whys. Um, so Nina, can you kind of give us a elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with the question of why and what what I do in conventional medicine and think about it. I kind of name it, blame it and tame it, if that makes sense. So the idea is someone comes in, you go, OK, you've got this disorder with these symptoms. Great. OK, I'm going to name it. This is the diagnosis and I'm going to give you a drug and go away with it. What what the switch is in functional medicine is you ask why. So why this person presenting with these symptoms and why now? Because that's the most important thing you need to know to try and reverse that dysfunction. Because what I think we've become um, good at a conventional medicine, we're fantastic at treating acute disease. But in an age of chronic disease where there's multifactorial influences and you actually develop a disease every day of your life over the period of years, the acute medicine model doesn't work anymore. So putting on a sticky plaster of an antibiotic that we used to use in acute medicine just doesn't work anymore. And that's why people are now coming through life, accumulating more and more diagnosis and more and more drugs. But no one's asking, why is a person developing all these things? Okay, and can we help actually root it out so the person doesn't go on to four anti-diabetic meds plus cholesterol-lowering drugs plus X, Y, and Z? So I think for me, the, the why question is very, very important because with the why, I can actually help someone back themselves out of dysfunction quicker rather than just putting them on more and more drugs. I think that kind of leads quite nicely onto like the next question was basically saying that um, the medical curriculum hasn't really changed over the last half a century. You know, was, kind of the training has been fairly similar and consistent. However, the, the kind of client presentation has changed loads over the last 25 years and they say for every one patient arriving to hospital with an acute condition 300 more are turning up to an outpatient setting with a chronic condition which must need a totally different toolbox to treat i mean you know you can't treat the same they're not the same presentation or and i think, that, I think that's what makes it difficult exactly exactly like you said octavia i think that's what uh, that's where the model needs to change and we need to change both the training of the doctors but also the way that we approach things i mean uh, lifestyle disease and chronic disease that uh, is non-communicable diseases which are the big actually epidemic right now um mm -hmm. is the stuff that gets created by the choices we make in our lifestyles and the exposures we have in our life so to treat them, a, a, a drug that's at the end of the pathway doesn't work so effectively, okay? We're, we're waiting for the people to develop all these really serious conditions and then give them medications for it. What we should be doing is really a lot more preventative care, actually putting in lifestyle medicine first, and actually all doctors need to be trained in that. And if I think back to my Cambridge education, or years of medical training, I had two hours of nutrition two hours and yet as, as a GP I'm sure Hannah you will find this you expected to dispense this lifestyle wisdom out of what out of what knowledge base and people can get frustrated with with doctors not knowing about something that they've read about but actually you know if you've gone through normal conventional medical pathway your job is to know the diseases and to know the symptoms and to know the drugs you you have not had the training in lifestyle medicine in nutrition so 
that's a tricky bit of it. We need to align that, I think, going forward in the next sort of few decades of medical education. We really need to shift that and make lifestyle medicine the bedrock onto which we put everything else as well. Mm-hmm. And Nina, just to add to that as well, but um, I don't know about how, how you'd find in more kind of conventional um, healthcare settings, but within the sort of infrastructure of a, a, a typical GP appointment of 10 minutes and, you know, within this, this kind of framework that's set up to, to support and provide healthcare, primary care and secondary care, um, it must be, I mean, you know, incredibly difficult to be able to actually get to the root cause of why people are coming and um, how best they can kind of, you know, move forward and feel more satisfied with their lives. Um, and I, I personally feel like the, the, the way that the system is set up at the moment um, doesn't really support that type of approach, um, which is why it's increasingly frustrating for patients, but also for healthcare professionals as well. Yeah, no, I'm with you completely. I think the, I guess what, if I had to think of my ideal way of working the system is, I would love us to have, obviously, in primary care, longer appointments, because that's the stuff that's really going to help us with patients, but also having that lifestyle medicine embedded in. So when someone comes in, you can actually, instead of just thinking, okay, like what script and what referral can I do? Because quite often in GP, you're firefighting. At least that's what I found. You're just going, right, okay, I've got 10 minutes, quick, right, what's going to kill you? Who do I need to refer you to? And how can I help you? And actually, quite often, you only have time for the first two really what's going to kill you now or very soon and who can I refer you to to help you sort your problem but actually ideally if we had longer consultations and more resources available at our fingertips in in in, on the front line then we could actually go you know what just try these two simple things and actually with the lifestyle medicine being embedded in that way in the first point of care I would then only see really, really complicated cases because that's the stuff I'm interested in I'm interested in people who come and see me and they've been to see you know, their GP and a couple of other people, maybe a nutritionist and someone else. And actually that's at the point at which I want to see them. I want them to have done some of the simpler things that are out there. And actually only when they have not been sorted, then I can invest the time to be able to help them with really, really deep root causes. But I think there's lots of stuff that we could be doing at the front line that we don't have the resources or the time to do at the moment. I think maybe that, do you think that's maybe why um, often some of these chronic conditions basically are, you're told that there's just no cure for them like IBS or you know polycystic ovary syndrome you often are just told this is something you're just going to have to live with whereas you know if you come to a functional medicine practitioner then they often can either not only just relieve the symptoms but actually reverse them it's just a totally different approach that enables you to have such an impact and it's impossible to do it in the modern day conventional medicine setting. I, I, I agree with that completely and I think the and i've seen it in my practice time and time again where you know people come from with their gp diagnosis of say for example pcos or something like that and you can you can reverse that this is not an irreversible thing and also people assume that one person's pcos or ibs is the same as the other well the s stands for syndrome so all it is is really a collection of symptoms lumped together and we decided to call it a specific bucket of stuff. So IBS, it doesn't matter whether you have diarrhea, constipation, alternating bowel habits, so-called IBS. There's no chance that all of these things are caused by the same cause, okay? PCOS, again, there are some people who have specific metabolic uh, abnormalities that are not present in other people with PCOS. 
So you need to treat the case individually, but yes, absolutely. In, our, in, in the NHS setting, we're always gonna be limited by time and resources available, and that's a tricky thing. Yeah, and I, I was just gonna say as well that I think there's also a real lack of continuity of care as well. Absolutely. So if you're coming in and seeing a different locum doctor every time, you know, it's mm. increasingly frustrating from a patient perspective. Um, mm you know, feeling like you have to go back to square one every time. Um, and it often means a big delay in, in diagnosis, you know, sometimes years for lots of people. Um, and it often is because of this kind of breakdown of the, the continuity of care system um, and, and a lack of sort of, a lack of, of um, relevant data presented to the clinician to make an informed informed call as well which is where I think kind of technology in the next sort of century or so is going to play a real role in being able to pre present the most relevant information to the patient and to the doctor at the right time. Especially if you've only got 10 minutes with someone and you're trying to pick up like a caseload or you know a, a watch of notes that thick you know like it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And um, do you fly, find that you get much resistance from conventional medicine when you're treating somebody alongside, you know, do you, do you find doctors are happy to share test results and, you know, are they, how do they kind of, you know, deal with you when you, when you kind of say, Hey, I'm helping out with this patient. I think the reactions vary like anywhere else, you know, thinking about going into any industry, the, the reactions to someone, uh, or collaborating with someone will vary. You know, if you think about a normal meeting, you know, in the NHS MDT teams that do or don't work, it, I find that it varies. So some of the time people will just go, okay, well, I'll give you some information. Um, so quite often GPs are very happy to share test results um, as long as they understand, obviously they're sharing with a fellow healthcare professional, so that's absolutely fine. Obviously the patient goes away and gets those results because it's their information and passes it on to me. So that's, um, you know, in terms of uh, consent and data protection, all of that stuff is covered. Um, some people are really interested, so I'm finding a lot that I've worked with some amazing GPs who are really interested in the approach that I do, because what they see is the complicated cases that have evaded them for years because they haven't had the time to dig into that person, suddenly turning around, you know, had um, a case whereby someone, Hashimoto's thyroiditis was really quite bad, but she wasn't able to tolerate liver thyroxine because of palpitations, and she ended up with ANA, with arrhythmias, basically. But actually, we dug through it, we figured out that actually it was a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and histamine issues. And once we've got that sorted, actually, her Hashimoto's antibodies have dropped and her TSH was pretty much nearly normal after SIBO treatment and, and doing some of that. So seeing this result, the GP was like, what, 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 what's all this stuff about? And so I'm very happy to share information. I'll send papers from PubMed. Um, because I think the more people think that way, the more people think about why, why this complex patient keeps representing, the more we can actually save ourselves money in the long run, I think, mm. if we practice the medicine of why a bit more, because we're not then getting people represented with IBS. So sometimes what I see with, in that case is also the revolving door with the colonoscopies. So you have the revolving door of GP, gastro, back to GP and that sort of thing. And actually, if you do some proper gut work for three mm. to six months, you don't have to have the representation. You don't have to go around the houses anymore. And you can save the NHS and yourself a lot of money and time and grief, really. Same thing with hormonal disorders, you know, thinking about, again, PCOS, because it impacts not just the woman, fertility of it, but the whole family sometimes. And again, will impact the way that, that the, the timeline of that family develops. So if you can tackle it early, if you actually get girls diagnosed early, they will have those metabolic abnormalities actually pretty early on in puberty. 
So you, if you can diagnose women between, say, 16 and 20 with that, you don't then have to wait until they're actually trying for a child and then are having to deal with all of the consequences of having had PCOS for that long. Mm -hmm. The problem is we also mask stuff with the pill. I mean, that's obviously a bigger issue because, because we, girls go on the pill quite early. You can actually mask PCOS and manifestations of hormonal disorders but because of using the pill. It's not until later you come to do... You can go, I'm going to go off the pill and get pregnant. And then you go, oh, hold on a second. This isn't supposed to the way it's supposed to work. And that's when it all starts getting unmasked. So if we're a bit more vigilant and if we treat the root cause, then I think both women and families don't have to suffer. And Nina, could I, could I just ask a question on that, on that topic? I think it's absolutely fascinating, particularly around kind of hormonal dysfunction as well, and um, particularly around kind of being proactive um, from that perspective. And I was just wondering what your experience is around um, kind of subfertility and infertility mm. um, and the kind of approaches that you can take. Um, obviously, it can be an incredibly emotional um, time for, for couples to go through um, these types of, of life events. Um, and um, I think your approach is really, really innovative and, and different. And I would just love to understand a little bit more, you know, what types of approaches you would take and how you would, um, you know, work with, with couples to kind of learn about them a bit better and help them through it. Sure. I think, um, I guess it depends where I meet them on the journey. So sometimes people come to me and they've actually, you know, tried IVF and they've failed a couple of cycles. Or sometimes uh, people come to me quite early, actually, they've, they've heard that I can manage hormones and they go, okay, we want to have the best chances. Potentially, maybe they're both maybe in their late 30s, early 40s, and they're going to go, okay, we know that their fertility may not be optimal, so what can we do to optimize it? And I guess you start with a normal assessment, just like you would do in, in sort of GP lab, you do the clinical history. You will, I would run uh, kind of a, some blood panels, really, looking at both the hormone, but also nutrient levels. Um, and I think that gets a bit underestimated, again, because I think we don't talk about in the conventional medical setting the impact that simple things like vitamin D have on testosterone levels, actually hormonal levels, as well as people's energy, as well as follicular formation. So if you actually vitamin D deficient, which a lot of us are, and you don't correct it to a good level, actually your, the impact of follicle, it has an impact on follicle generation, has an impact on whether your hormones work or not, or whether males have healthy testosterone levels. So simple things like that, doing a simple screen of just looking at the hormone levels. For women, of course, it has to be at the right time of their cycle. So quite often I would do two different tests. I will look at the day 21 blood tests. So that's, of course, the second phase, looking at whether someone has enough progesterone to be able to maintain the second phase of the cycle. Um, and maintain a healthy pregnancy ultimately, and also do some of the early blood tests. So that's your typical day three blood test, looking at stuff like PCOS and that sort of thing. So with women, it's a bit more complicated because we have to ride the wave of hormones and we have to catch them at a couple of different times. Um, and with guys, you just do a one-off um, morning a sort of um, sample effective testosterone and all the metabolic markers. And you start off with, if you meet people that early on, you start with health optimization, really making sure that you know, they are optimal in terms of having a good anti-inflammatory diet with full of whole foods. So we follow Mediterranean type pattern because that has the best evidence. Um, optimizing their nutrient intake, obviously making sure that um, the woman has good antenatal um, multivitamin really with enough, not just folic, because everyone talks about folic acid, everybody knows about folic acid, mm -hmm. but actually vitamin D, the fact that her magnesium needs to be optimized because vitamin D won't work without magnesium. So we talk about 
vitamin D and calcium all the time because we've been drummed into us that it's all of our bones. But actually, magnesium is needed for the vitamin D receptor to work effectively. Wow. So we need both calcium and magnesium for the vitamin D to have the right effects in the body. Anyway, um, so we, once we've gone through the kind of the health optimization, if the couple are still struggling with um, the specific issues, say we're a year down the line, we're not getting any further, and then we do some deeper work really. When people come to me with around IVF cycles, that's a very, very different environment, of course, because then you have to work with the IVF clinic to coordinate things. And quite often, um, it's a very different, it's a quite an artificial environment, if that makes sense. The third type that I quite often meet is, of course, when women have gone through some of the miscarriages. So when they are not quite hit the three miscarriage mark, which, to be honest, I know why we do it as an NHS for resource setting, but it absolutely horrifies me that anyone has to go through three miscarriages to get referred. Mm -hmm. It's like we don't, we don't wait for three car accidents yeah, for exactly. someone to get referred to orthopedics, but we're perfectly happy to let a woman lose her baby three times yeah, before exactly. we refer to someone, which is ridiculous. But that, so what, that's another place where I quite often meet women when they've had one or two miscarriages and they kind of go, look, what can I do to optimize um, my chances? And that's when we look quite often I would then look at genetics as well as obviously of the obvious causes. So we still test for stuff like antiphospholipid syndromes and some of the more common conventional medical stuff. But I then also look at some of the genetics. So sometimes what happens in particular in the Caucasian population is we can have some um, variants in our genes that make us not metabolize folate very well. And not in everybody, but in some women, it can be related to an increased risk of miscarriage. So just by actually giving, instead of folic acid or folate, giving a different type of folate called methylfolate, you can bypass that step and you can improve someone's chances. So, yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's actually quite a simple step. And that's why, in a way, I have to say, normally when women come to me and they're looking to get pregnant, I will put them on methylfolate straight out because actually... All I've done is bypass that step and given them a more active thing that doesn't have any known side effects at low doses. So I, I just bypass that step anyway. I suppose as well, like when you're dealing with the patients who've gone through the miscarriages as well, you're going to be looking again much more at that holistic pathway as well. So you're going to be doing loads more with mental health support and, and checking from a, you know, a mood point of view, because I think that can have, it can have such a profound impact on people losing a baby. And I think, you know, it's, you don't realise until you've had a miscarriage, A, how common it is, but B, how awful it is. Like, you know, you, because it's not just the, you know, that you've lost this, baby that obviously wasn't you know such early stages but it's the time it takes to get pregnant and all the hope and the wishes and everything and that can take over your whole life for you know a very long time and then to lose all of it and have all the physical changes that go with that as well it's you know it's hugely impacting and I think like again you know it's it's you if with the functional medicine approach you get all of that together you know you get that support and and understanding and and I, and I think um again you know I'm not an expert in it but it, it, the stress can have a real impact on your hormone level again can't it so absolutely. which can then make it harder to get pregnant again is that right yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely because and actually that's one of the impacts that we are definitely seeing chronic stress have because chronic stress and chronically elevated cortisol levels, even within the kind of high normal range, not, not the Cushing's disease, not that really pathological range, but that can have an impact on women's insulin resistance. So again, it can have an impact in terms of giving you a PCOS type syndrome, 
can have an impact on actually whether you're um, menstruating regularly. And quite interesting, you know, if we're thinking about what's happened more recently with kind of the lockdown stress, women's cycles have changed. They might have found actually their periods are not the same that they used to be because actually the stress and anxieties that come with it actually has changed the way that their hormones are flowing through the cycle. So yeah, absolutely. And I think what, what we tend to do, what I like about function integrative medicine is the integrative bit is really incorporating the whole team. And that's why I've set up the clinic and I just kind of was like one woman band. I'm like, that's fine. I enjoy doing this, but really it's when the woman or the couple is wrapped in a whole team that really you can see some really profound changes. Because the other thing I think that oh, then happens, it can be quite isolating, for example, during, you know, after a miscarriage for, for the woman. And actually quite often the partner might really want to help, but they just have no clue how. They have no idea what's going on. What can they do? And they're probably trading an eggshells, just thinking about what they can say or do. But equally, the men go through a really rough ride as well. Like, you know, they, they also lose a baby and a dream, you know, so it's not just the woman who's got, you know, and, and being so helpless must be really, you know, I mean, looking at men in the kind of traditional protective role, you know, they, they, they're helpless and they can't help. So it, it must be very challenging for a man to support a woman through that for many reasons. But also going back to the lockdown, what you just said as well, like, um, you know, all these poor women and couples have had their fertility treatment stopped. And I know it's starting to kind of get moving again. But, you know, I think this is another really interesting way that you can help women um, through, you know, these new crazy times that we're living in. Because I think, you know, there is still so much that can be done and so many changes that can be made that can get the body prepared and ready and, you know, help, you know, kind of ride the storm that we're going through. So, you know. No, we, and we see that actually, the, another thing is that we're not often aware of the trials, but there have been studies done that show actually nutritional optimization and normalizing some of the metabolic parameters and certain hormonal disorders have a big impact on, on fertility and um, successful pregnancies and pregnancies carried to term. So absolutely, I think there's always stuff you can do. It's mm -hmm. about just, um, you know, even if you can't go five years right now or you're further down the list, there's a whole ton of stuff that you can you can prepare yourself um, with. The other thing that I'd like to say is, is quite often, um, depending on the pathways, um, IVF can get jumped to as well fairly quickly sometimes. It depends, obviously, if you fit the criteria for referral. Sometimes it's a really long road and sometimes it can come around fairly quickly. Mm. But I'd, I'd urge people to explore other methods as well. So I think if you can optimize your nutritional status, if you can make sure that you're having regular cycles, if you can make sure that your partner's also being checked out, because let's not forget the, the man in the equation, then actually we can possibly avoid going through the IVF cycle anyway. And they're, they're traumatic things, you know, I've, I've had um, people go through them and the injections, the mood swings that come with having that amount of hormones circulating around and the weight, the weight of whether it's going to take or not, you know, this is, it's, it's really, really hard. It's a huge roller coaster in and of itself. Sorry, no, no, I was going to say, but also if you if you make all of those changes, they're going to have a huge impact on your life generally. I mean, you know, like reducing your weight, reducing the chance of getting diabetes, of cholesterol, you know, high blood pressure. And then I think if you do have an undiagnosed um, polycystic ovary syndrome, it can apparently um, lead to an increased risk of endometrial cancer as well. So there, there's some links. So I think, you know, it's having that whole lifestyle change and just putting your body whether you're trying to get pregnant or not you know into a much better position really and i think there's also been this i think there's 
almost looks a bit of a mess of women to suffer <laughs> the women are meant to suffer through their cycles i'm like that no that is not normal we are not meant to suffer and actually if if you are suffering really badly if it's not just yeah. a bit of grumpiness before your period mm. if you're properly having proper pain if some if your period puts you in bed or if your second half of the cycle is so bad you turn into a mad person and i say that i say that from experience so don't worry <laughs> But if, if you are suffering that, that is not normal. That needs to be checked out, needs to be sorted because what, what you don't want to do is leave it because the longer you leave it, obviously the more chance all of this has to embed itself. And then, like you said, you have unintended consequences of having vulnerable hormonal imbalance for a lot of your life. So no, it's not normal to suffer, honestly. It really isn't. Yeah, they're, they're, we, the lots of things with women are often normalized, like incontinence and... Okay. You know, yeah pain during pregnancies it's like it's fine it's normal it's like it's not normal <laughs> there are things out there that can help you you just need to know where to look okay amazing and um nina have you got any kind of special success stories that have been your you know things that you ride through with you that you know your favorite stories to tell about your fertilities Ooh, good question. Yeah. Well, I've got two. I've got uh, two, I think, that, that illustrate the approach really well. Um, the first one was actually, it was a woman who came to me for IBS and she kind of had a PCOS as a, almost a sideline. And because she wasn't aware that kind of our approach could help with that necessarily, she was going, okay, we're going to try to start trying for a baby. I'm not sure if you can help with that, but I, I've heard you were really good with the gut. So I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> Um, and in six months, um, she no longer was experiencing IBS symptoms and she was pregnant with no, and this was perfect, the kind of GP stage forward box standard PCOS on the blood test in December and I think June, July, she was pregnant with, with a healthy pregnancy and I just got a baby picture about a couple of months back. Yay. I was very happy about that. Um, I guess the second one, which is, it was a bumpy ride for this, for this poor lady because she's lost, she's had two early miscarriages and that's when we did a lot more digging around actually in terms of what couldn't, couldn't help. And that's where she had that methylation abnormality, basically the inability to activate folate very well. It's not a complete block. So what happens is if you want to use folate, what you need to do is you need to attach something called the methyl group onto it. Think of it as a little bit like an, an active bit. It just activates and make it bounce around and do the things that it's meant to do. Um, and when you have a SNP or a variant in the gene that makes that happen, what happens is that that enzyme slows down. So it becomes really sluggish. So it can function at about 40% of the normal rate. Now, normally it wouldn't be an issue, but in pregnancy in particular, it, it can have a massive impact. And that's why we take folic acid, because just growing a baby, growing the neural tube, growing the spine, all of that cell division has to chug through a lot of folate. So what I find is if we find this and we bypass it with methylfolate, she was able to carry, you know, her next pregnancy to term and, and without complications. So that was, that was brilliant. Yeah. And she didn't have to suffer with it again, because also the fear, the not knowing why I think is another thing that we haunts women is, you know, one, one miscarriage, people tell you, you know, that there is a certain amount, there's a, there's a big rate of early miscarriages, but when you've been through it, even, even once it's traumatic enough, when you've been through it more than once and no one can give you a, an idea of why that might have even happened, you, you're petrified, aren't you? You're kind of going through third pregnancy, going, well, what, what's going on here? And then the stress of it all as well is it, not contributing to anybody's emotional or physical well-being. Mm. So being able to at least investigate it, we've ruled out all the other causes like antiphospholipid syndromes, we've done all that. 
And then when we saw the, just how slow that enzyme was and bypassed it with methylfolate, that, you know, that simple step, as well as optimizing her general nutrition, has, has made the difference in her next pregnancy. So Maybe. not saying everybody is that dramatic, but it's the two that have stuck most often, because, mainly because I got baby pictures more recently. So. Well, like, <laughs> better than someone coming back saying, I'm, you know, I'm pain-free or symptom-free. It's like, look what I've got, I've got a baby. <laughs> no, I don't think. I think pain-free is amazing, because what I think of is just how much you got off your back. I think, Octavia, the work you do is fantastic, because living with pain is every day is so draining on the body is so draining and emotionally physically and i say to people if you haven't had an emotional psychological issue before getting chronic pain you will have one yeah. by the time you're done with it yeah. because it's not possible it's not possible to live with chronic pain and be psychologically well it's just so immensely draining no so i think the work you do is amazing yeah okay. <laughs> do you think um there's there's kind of a, a running theme through all of this in that there's a real lack of um research and focus on women's health and and so for so long now it, it's been it's been a real bugbear of mine but increasingly frustrating that you know traditionally technology but also you know research science is all kind of focused much more on men and women kind of bolted on as an add-on at the end and actually you know men have zero mandatory health appointments between the ages of 15 to 40 women have you know, tens if not twenties of, of appointments that we have to go to and we have to engage with healthcare professionals. So why is there such a research gap between the mm -hmm. genders, you know? Um, and um, yeah, on it about how all research is aimed at like mid, uh, kind of 35 to 50 year old Caucasian men. <laughs> if you read, if you read PubMed quite often, if you read the study, a group of healthy male volunteers, <laughs> basically, yeah. that's how it reads. <laughs> Um, on pelvic girdle pain like all of the evidence is around men like so how can you do because obviously it's probably slightly unethical to do any research on a pregnant woman with pelvic girdle pain but still like how can you compare a healthy male pelvis to a <laughs> female pelvis with a baby it just doesn't make any sense or if it, if it was a man that had been going through all of these life changes, you know, <laughs> don't you think they would have thought of a workaround to test out, you know, more innovative cutting edge products and services that would actually help, you know? Um, oh, but yeah. Right. No, I'm with you. And I, think, <laughs> and I think, but the thing that's, the other thing is, that's why I don't like normalizing. I don't like normalizing female cycle related symptoms. That's yeah. why I hate it because yeah. I think what's happened is because, and I quite often see that as well. Someone will come to me after having seen, kind of gone through GP and gynae and they kind of go, oh, it's normal. I'm like, no, this is not. If you have not, as a man, you can't tell me it's normal to flood through two lots of protection for no particularly good reason. That is not normal. Do you even understand what the implications of them are when I'm sitting at work? Yes. So it, I think it's that bit of blindness and... If you think about even obs and gynae, you know, there's a good amount of male professionals there. And actually, because they haven't experienced them, their symptoms, they don't really, really on a practical level, just don't understand what it's like to flood through to loss of protection. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, and, and the fact that we are kind of throwing, I guess, I don't, from my perspective, I think we need to do more and more investigating, more wise, and a lot less just throwing something at it. Have this pill. This pill doesn't agree with you. Have this pill. I'm like, but but why so what what is going on so badly in the body that something doesn't sit that's giving you such bad side effects so it's I, I think, yeah. sympathy, but it's just it, it's just amazing that it's not the case like you know it just makes so much sense so 
that that would be the right approach. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully are going to shift. And I think another thing that we are hopefully going to see the direction research going into over the next couple of decades is more pragmatic research. So when we're talking about randomized control studies, is like lots of big studies, you have to have lots of money for them. So guess what? They kind of have to be done by pharma. So when people talk about evidence and nutrition evidence, guess who stumps up the money to, to provide evidence for nutrition? It's yeah. really government because you can't patent a nutrient and you know, farmers done amazing things for us. Absolutely. They're expensive dry trials to run. But from our perspective, the reason there is not much research in nutrition is because no one can patent it and it doesn't sell very well. Yeah. So from our perspective, we actually need more pragmatic trials. You know, methylfolate is not expensive, for example. You know, omega-3, the sort of stuff that can make a big difference, again, from pregnancy point of view, uh, baby's outcomes, you know, probiotics. You know, yeah. We're actually seeing more trials on probiotics and allergic disease. If you give women probiotics during pregnancy, you can reduce the risk of allergic disorders later in life. So again, if all of this stuff is more disseminated in a nice contained way to the health professionals, but also we are taught that this isn't the soft option, this isn't voodoo, this yeah. is actual science. And if you just put the stuff into PubMed, you'll see the amount of trials are being done. Mm. We can really change stuff. Um, I know that I've had um, some doctors say before that, you know, probiotics, don't take them. There's no evidence behind them. They're all unregulated. You have no idea what you're taking. And I think, you know, that there, there are a lot of, you know, places that you can buy probiotics from and there's lots of different varieties. And you don't, I, I, in the lecture you did recently, Nina, you mentioned, you know, you shouldn't just be taking just one of them all the time because that's not going to work. So, you know, it's not just as simple as taking probiotics, but I think it's just getting that understanding through. And I hopefully the more that people see the benefits that, you know, nutrition, mental health, all these different things, and, and, and it becomes more normalized um, that people will start to kind of have a better understanding of it all. And But I think, you know, it needs to be filtered through to the NHS if, or, or at least our, our general medical practitioners because they're the people who probably see most of the patients and it's getting that information out there that there are other alternatives um, and better ones, you know. And, and even just like the simple things, like what you put into your body, it just makes so much sense, you know. Yeah. But, but I think, and I think, like you said, it is, but also I think the onus very much needs to be on giving information to us, us as people who care about our own health, because we do need, uh, from my perspective, I think you are the expert of your own body ultimately, in terms of no one can tell you how you feel. Um, and again, that's where the symptom dismissal, I'm not a fan of because symptoms are just a way of your body telling you something isn't right. Okay. Even if it doesn't make sense to someone else, this isn't, you can't dismiss what someone is feeling because that's what they're feeling in their body. But I think we need to become experts of our own bodies, our experts in terms of just even simple things like, you know, Dr. Chatterjee, I love his four pillars. It's a great stuff to hang your stuff around. You know, if you know how to eat well, move well, sleep well and relax and do something for stress management, that stuff makes huge changes. And we wouldn't see half the chronic disease we do right now if we just if we did the, those things. But the other thing I think we have to consider is how much confusion there is out there, particularly in the media around what's a balanced diet. You know, if you like if you ask a healthcare professional, you, you, you ask some of our you know, GFU friends or, you know, medical consultants, what's a balanced diet? And you know, you, you're gonna get hundreds of different answers. Um, Even so. like, on the, if you go onto the NHS website of what is a balanced diet, there's the, the pyramid still with carbohydrates at the bottom is huge, you know, and I think like, it's just, 
I mean, even I know that, and I'm, you know, I know nothing about nutrition. <laughs> So and, and you know, I, that's concerning, you know, like you just, and that probably stems back to that, you know, few hours of nutritional training that you had at uni, you know, like it's, it's crazy. And I think, yeah, it's building that, ex, it's, it's the emphasis now going into it. And even from, again, gut health, I think, even from what I know as well, like it, the evidence is still right at the early stages and that people are only just starting to take an interest in it from a medical point of view rather than just it being the sideline of like nutritional therapy it's now like oh right the gut is actually rather important has a huge impact on our well-being you know and actually the other thing that's quite interesting by the way because we were talking about PCOS earlier the fascinating thing that we are now seeing research coming out that microbiomes in women with PCOS are different to women without PCOS and what we are thinking now, and certainly Tim Spector, the, um, one of the main microbiome researchers in London, he, he talks about a lot. The fact that you can take identical twins and you can feed them an identical meal and their insulin responses, their blood glucose regulation will be different depending on their microbiome. So it's not genetics, it's not the meal, it's how your microbiome dictates the way that meal is metabolized. How and that's fascinating stuff. Is that whole nother? <laughs> What's that? How do you get the microbiome if they were twins? Like, is that what is that the environment and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, it's environment. It's obviously it's where you're born. So of course, whether you have a C-section or vaginal birth will affect your microbiome. How you're fed, so breastfed versus bottle fed, or some of the elemental formulas. How, what you eat on a daily basis, what antibiotics you've taken, what PPIs you've taken, all the omeprazoles and zoprazoles that we prescribe will affect your microbiome. So. A gut upset, if you go through an episode of bad gastroenteritis, actually, that changes your microbiome. Yeah. And in some cases, quite irreversibly, then we have a phenomenon of post-infectious IBS that goes on with that. So I think, that, but it's fascinating that actually what they found, they compared the PCOS and non-PCOS women, and they actually found that their, their insulin regulation was actually correlated with how dysbiotic the imbalance their gut flora was. So it's fascinating because, again, for me, I work on the gut quite a lot anyway, but the, we're now figuring out that obviously the, the gut communicates with so many different systems in our body, um, from hormones to brain, you've got the gut-brain axis, to your liver and the way that metabolizes things. For example, the other thing that quite often we don't get taught as a healthcare professional is that estrogen actually doesn't just get made and then goes poof magically out into the air our liver has to detoxify it has to eliminate it from the body to be able to regulate and have the up and down cycles that we have so you actually need to go through two phases of detoxification in the liver your liver needs to be working well to be able to eliminate estrogen effectively then the estrogen gets in the gut and then your gut bacteria decide whether to send it back around your circulation wow. so your gut bacteria can actually decide how much circulating estrogen to give back to you so they can actually go, nah, I don't want to detoxify this. I'm just going to send it back. So it's, there's a really interesting ecological relationship. And I think the reason I got attracted to functional medicine really is because I'm originally a scientist. So I think of people as systems. I don't think of people as silos with diagnostic labels. Yeah. I think of the whole physiology as a system and you kind of go, okay, right. So how do you nudge that physiology back into its normal shape? How, what do you have to balance to try and bring the person to the best health possible? Yeah. And I think you probably agree with me, Anna, that we've become a lot more about what disease we fix or what kind of quick fix we can achieve rather than actually bringing a person to health. Yeah. We yeah. go, what can I do to make you less diseased? <laughs> yeah, totally. I, th I think it's all about a quick fix, to be honest. The system is not set up to encourage this like more holistic thinking. 
Um, and it's really interesting you say about your approach because that's one of the things we say at Tinto is about, you know, it's not, we're not just talking about someone's ovaries or we're not just talking about someone's brain or their, you know, skin or whatever else it is in isolation. In order to actually help someone navigate their own journey and in order to really help them take steps forward in living a kind of fulfilled and satisfied life, you have to take the biopsychosocial approach in looking at somebody from all angles, you know, and bear all of these little things in mind. And 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 often when you align and, and look at things differently and are able to align those different sort of segments, that's when you really start to take leaps and bounds forward, which I'm sure you'll but I think even from a physio point of view, that's, you know, the biopsychosocial model is, is the key to, to treating a patient. So if you've got somebody and again, it comes down to that chronic pain, things like that, you've got to be looking at like what their background is, what, what, what happened during to, to cause the injury. Was it, you know, a car accident? You know, are they claiming compensation? Like, are they, have they got loads of stress at home and no support? Like what are the other factors that are contributing to this person's pain and preventing them to, to get better and go through the normal cycle of repair and, and healing? Um, because most injuries should get better after six to eight weeks to three months, you know, and then if they haven't, then there's, there's a problem in the healing process. And, and that's not just um, your muscle sprain or bone fracture anymore then there's a whole new host of, of things going on that are, are impacting it and and you've got to affect those to then make the change and you've then got to also train and educate the person and get them on board with whatever it is you're telling them to do because they they have to be part of that healing process as well it's not just you know you going in there giving them a massage or manipulating them or giving them an exercise to do they've got to own it themselves yeah yeah i'm with you completely i think that's what i was trying to say that actually the information about kind of um lifestyle and the microbiome and other stuff like that needs to be disseminated not just to primary healthcare professionals because that still puts ultimately poor overstretched gps on the front line going okay i now have to deliver all of my standard stuff plus all this extra stuff in what time yeah there's no time to do it it has to be but it also has to come from you and that's why i think getting to be an expert of your own health and also filtering information really carefully going okay right if i'm going to listen to something about nutrition i'm going to listen to some random person am i going to listen to a doctor to a qualified nutritionist to someone who knows what they're talking about so it's about filtering information in and also if you're confused just going to see someone sometimes just going to see someone a couple of times can really help you understand what's right for you because i think the greatest big fallacy out there is that there is one diet that fits everyone there isn't i can tell you that because there isn't, we are all biochemically individual and unique. So you can't say that the same, and that's why I think the nutrition research is ultimately so confused, is everybody's looking for the magic golden ratio of protein, fat, carbohydrate for weight yeah. loss, or golden ratio for X, Y, and Z. And everybody's arguing whether high fat and keto is better than la la la. It, it actually so depends on your biochemical individuality, what suits you, what suits your taste, what you can stick to, and what your microbiome is actually might have something to say about this. So I think becoming a really good expert about curating your own symptoms and kind of going, okay, right, if something doesn't sit right in my body, I need to make sure that I sort out. So if my periods are bad enough that I literally crippled for a week, I probably need to investigate that. That's why endometriosis goes undiagnosed for 10 years plus is because number one, women assume that it's normal to be in that so much pain. And then it gets dismissed as, oh, well, your periods are bad. Never mind. 
So that's why it takes so long to get to diagnosis. So from my perspective, I think become an expert of your own body, try and curate your information so your health information comes from good sources and then collaborate with healthcare professionals so that you can find the right person to help you sort things out. Yeah. And um, if you, I mean, this kind of leads quite nicely on, um, if you were, and we'll put this in like the show notes at the end, but if you were to kind of, what, what resources and, and where, where would you send people if they're looking for a um, support with fertility in their fertility journey, but also for functional medicine, like where's the best place to find your local functional medicine practitioner or how'd they find you? Institute of Functional Medicine has a whole directory of people and obviously they're an American based organization, but they have plenty of people who are trained over here. Um, you have to be aware not everybody in functional medicine is a doctor. So I know it says the word medicine, but actually functional medicine, because it was nutritionally based, has been picked up by nutrition professionals far more than it has been by doctors so far in the UK. It's a very different situation in, in, in America where it's, it's very much the other way around. Um, so IFM, if you go into ifm.org, it should have some of the information about practitioners and what the approach is all about. Um, and I can certainly put in some resources on show notes. So um, I can put in something like a phytonutrient guide, which is, talks about the importance of different columns in terms of the antioxidants they provide and what they can do for your microbiome and your hormones and all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. um, and I can also just give you some of the um, other handouts that we've got that might help people. Okay. Thank you. I feel like we could actually talk forever. We might have to. We probably could talk forever. Yes. But we are going to have to wrap it up. So I'm going to say thank you so much, Dr. Nina and Dr. Thank Hannah, for joining you. us today. It's been so amazing hearing all the wonderful things that functional medicine has to offer. And I think that we're all definitely moving towards a much more holistic approach, especially during this crazy time that we're living in. Um, and I think finding the root cause to a condition again just makes total sense to me um, and I guess finally whatever your end goal is nourishing the body and the mind is a really good starting point so hopefully people will start to go forward and look look for some alternative or just different ways of helping themselves moving forwards so thank you thank you so much thank you Bye. Bye.